0: Welcome back to another episode of the Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. In this episode, Christy and I discuss the concept of an afterlife, how that concept might have originated, and why we think it might be integral to the human experience. We also discuss the connected topics of object permanence, depression, meaning, animal psychology, and even some metaphysics in the nature of reality. This episode was a blast to record and a fun topic to explore to wrap up our three-part series on religion and spirituality from a psychological perspective. If you enjoy what Christy and I are doing, please like, subscribe, share, comment, and drop a review. Creating content is only as meaningful as the foot traffic and feedback that we can get regarding these ideas. So, without further ado, Happy Thanksgiving and enjoy Religion and Spirituality Part 3. righty. So where do you want to start?
1: Well, I think a summary of what we covered, well, we tried to cover last time, the afterlife was the prompt uh, as far as religion goes. And we ended up talking about many other things. Um, so the goal today is to get back to that original prompt, but who knows what we will end up
0: okay um yeah we did we ended up talking a lot about like toolboxes and utility Mm
2: -hmm.
0: psychological dispositions towards utilizing that um and we didn't focus too much on the afterlife and i know you brought up like medieval burials pagan burials stuff like that Mm -hmm. and i think that's a good place to start um Primarily because as I was thinking about it, I thought of at least the fact of burying and marking the dead is an indicator of at least the beginnings of continuation. Mm
2: -hmm. And,
0: And by continuation, I don't necessarily mean like life after death but at the very least there was that idea that there was continuity yeah at least at least the values and beliefs that that person held could be transferred out over time in that preserving the image and memory of that person more often than not at their finest right you don't see statues of famous people as they're old and crippled or like dying on the battlefield unless it's displaying courage or something like that you tend to see representations of them at their finest
1: yeah the thing that interests me specifically with like british um like iron age bronze age burials are that people are still pretty nomadic at that time they did not settle down they would go back to the same place multiple times but they would follow the game that they were trying to hunt and, you know, they weren't farming, they were completely nomadic and you start to see some burials that, you know, people have found evidence of, and they're varying between cremation and sky burials and then just like a fetal position burial. Um, so they wouldn't dig like a coffin sized hole. They would dig a hole and then curl the person up with usually a couple of items um, we don't know exactly what was in there because everything that was metal survived, but there could have been other things. Um, so they, they were doing all of these at the same time and there's not really any rhyme or reason that we can figure out why they, were, why they would do it to a certain person and not to another person. Um, and then they would also bury them in clusters like cemeteries with one main burial in the middle that has a lot of grave goods, a lot of metal that we can find, which would have been very rare in the Bronze and Iron Age, um, and then some more people scattered throughout that have less um, grave goods, so presumably not as important. Um, and it would be, you know, usually an adult in the middle, and then some child. Like children died a lot, so there's a lot of children burials, and um, um, and obviously adults and the yeah these cemeteries were preparing the body for something but then at the very same time you might just leave a person out for a sky barrel and just let the crows get them and it seems like that has not as much reverence as burying someone digging the hole and even at the time cremating a body would have been a lot of resources and a lot of time and they were still doing this as well um and then taking those ashes and putting them in a grave and burying all of that so we found these through um you know just digging them up seeing what's in there um because you can tell when an area is sacred like that because the ground would be kind of built up um in like a barrow and usually in the very middle you find that one very important grave and is the idea that they are like they're nomadic so once we started living in cities we had to dispose of bodies in a specific way in order to keep everyone safe so our religion definitely would have evolved to bury bodies at that time because if you just left them where they lied you wouldn't just leave in a month you would have to deal with that body eventually. Um, but when you're nomadic, you don't really have to do that. You can just drop them and head to the next spot. So they were going out of their way to do these things, it seems. And there's no written record of their religion or what they were going for. Um, but to me, you know, that's the research that I have access to because in Britain, it's all written in English. So I've read research a lot of that. I don't know what other people were doing in like, you know, Europe proper, Um But it seems like a good mix, at least in Britain, of different techniques of disposing of bodies. And yeah, who knows why.
0: I wonder what the symbolism there is. Right, so like, I can imagine sky burials or something like that reserved for thieves or people that have been dishonored.
2: -hmm.
0: Right, because that's typically how. There's the the old imagery of bodies on the battlefield being left Mm -hmm. for the crows. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, whereas those foraging animals don't have access to the body if they're buried, and I wonder if. I wonder if that's just metaphorical right respect this person Uh, so don't let anything have access to them Mm -hmm. right and by anything i don't mean like nothing at all i mean um uncontrolled or unfettered access to them and i wonder too how much they had a conception of ecological recycling The body decomposing, the nutrients going back to the earth and stuff like that. So I think this is purely hypothetical, but there is that correlation there between the burials with steps removed to going back to Mother Nature being for the less respected. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, they have to go through a multi step route, almost like a purgatory, as opposed to those leaders, those important people, those respected people I'm would sure. get buried and they'd be able to just literally go back to Mother Earth.
1: It does seem, I think, that there was some understanding because these burials would happen, you know, decades apart. It seems, you know, it's obviously hard to get that specific when you're talking 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Um, so it seems like people would leave and then return to this spot that they knew, you know, were like elephants like migratory, we know the good groves, we're heading back there. So they would head back and then occupy that same place, the same houses would probably still be there, they'd fix them up and the same cemetery would be there as well. And they probably had a sense that when they left and come back, the bodies were, you know, decomposed, the place looked different. Um, cause they would, you know, let the earth take over the spot that they were at and then come back and re-inhabit it. Um, and I think the other interesting thing is that they were all buried in the fetal position, which might have been just easier cause it's a smaller hole to dig. Um, cause once you get like into Roman times and like the Roman occupation of Britain, everyone's buried in a coffin flat, uh, face up. Um, unless you're a vampire, then they would bury you face down later on. Um, but so everyone was buried face up in a big hole. Um, but before that, it, they would be fetal, which was either easiest to do or, you know, returning literally like you were born back to the earth, which would be a very nice cycle. Um, obviously that's me like putting that on (laughs) what I see, who knows what they were actually thinking. Um, and then the burying of the ashes as well seems they had a sense that they were returning things back to the earth rather than just you know getting rid of this body um, or preparing it to be resurrected again or something like um, more Christian and Romans did that as well so yeah and then no one knows why they were buried with goods as well so sometimes they would be buried with a knife, they would have different rings, metal, uh, glass beads sometimes, and were those tools for the afterlife? Was it just something that was important to that person? There's no clear rhyme or reason, whereas once the Romans get into Britain, every single Roman is buried with a pair of shoes. Um, And so there's some clear consistency there with, they obviously need shoes at some point once they're dead for the afterlife. Um, And the Romans would bury children with adult size shoes. So So it's not, yeah. So it's not necessarily these were these person's shoes that they used in real life. Um, it would have been, you know, any pair of shoes or a very nice pair of shoes, but it wasn't because they wore these shoes every day that they were buried with them. It had some sort of religious significance, which, um, is probably, I, I don't think it's written down exactly, but, um, I think people believe that the Romans thought they would need to get up and walk into the afterlife. So they would have to be given these shoes. But if a child, you know, tra- children were given adult size shoes, so they wouldn't have been able to use them. So who knows? Um, but the actual grave goods themselves are always very interesting because they are goods that are rare, hard to come by. Um, and everything at that point serves some type of purpose or. Um, You know, you could trade for it. So they would give up these items to that person for some reason. Um, So presumably they were preparing them for an afterlife or just honoring them in some way. Um, It's very interesting.
0: Okay, two things. First, it is fun to think about that returning to Mother Earth concept because if they did have at the very least some idea of we eat from what comes from the ground so in order to have more stuff from the come from the ground we have to return to the ground
2: Mm -hmm.
0: as an origin of an afterlife myth and in this particular case by myth i'm just talking about belief in an afterlife narrative however rudimentary i'm not talking about like you know a dogmatic formalized system of beliefs because i don't know that just that makes that seems like the the next logical step to me now that might be because I'm forward in time looking backwards at it. And there's a whole panoply of assumptions that I have now that I've inherited through my culture to make that an easy, logical jump to me. But if they're aware of that cycle for a physical need, it makes sense that a metaphysical need would arise parallel to that as a narrative in their culture to reinforce that behavior, right? And, in, in, in we can reason this out and play with it a little bit more that there would be evidence for that because those that did adhere to that metaphysical narrative to perpetuate those behaviors had more more fertile nomadic grounds than those that didn't Right, because those nutrients would be going back to the earth would to be you know reformed into the plants and then the animals that ate the plants and everything that those people consume, right? Second thing is we know very explicitly that upwards of five thousand years ago, at least, the Egyptians were documenting their Explicit afterlife beliefs. Now, they evolved over time, as, as all cultures and beliefs and things like that do. But they found archaeological evidence, you know, all the way up to the beginning of the Egyptian Empire, which is oh, the better part of 5,000 years ago, you know, we're talking 2500 BC, that there was that element of the afterlife there. I mean, one of the bounding myths i guess of egyptian culture is that of osiris of being tricked by his evil brother killed dismembered and then isis and his son horus find all of his pieces piece him back together horus defeats the evil brother and osiris comes back to life quote unquote to be the god of the underworld Mm -hmm. so I mean that that goes all the way back Um, so we are we are talking about a time like if we're going back 5,000 years ago talking about a time where other cultures around the world already had firmly held afterlife beliefs so it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that the pre-Anglo-Saxon and Gallic um, and Nordic pagan tribes when they were nomadic, you know, five to 10,000 years ago, would as well. What's interesting about that, though, is A, did they share similar beliefs because there was cultural contact? If so, how? Because that would be an incredible story. Yeah. B, if they didn't have cultural contact is the development of an afterlife myth or belief system inherent as part of the human animal right that that's something interesting to think about convergent evolution um where yeah cultures with vastly different needs and vastly different belief systems and vastly different behavioral norms develop similar boundary mechanisms
1: what you said earlier with like putting the bodies in the ground like literally makes that place better to return to in the future because all of those nutrients are there there's better plants greener grass um to me something click there with you put the body in the ground there's you know, wildlife, plants, the land is fertile and you leave that area and you come back and it's still really good. I can see how that idea would develop where if we treat these bodies in a certain way and we give them grave goods and do whatever rituals we would have done to whatever panoply of gods there were, we have no idea at this point because um, nothing was written down which is where the Egyptians are so much better to study. Um, so it would make sense that you would have this sort of confirmation when you go back to that same spot again and again, and it's still good. And, you know, as a nomad, you're traveling through all of these places that are bad, and you've never stopped there and put a body in the ground. Whereas this place, you have stopped there and put a body in the ground. And, you know, it's sort of a chicken and the egg was this place good? Then you started doing this and you realized it was working or did you literally improve the environment by being there? Um, which probably a little bit of both. Um, but with the Egyptians, like the mummifying and keeping all like, you know, they would take the blood out and put the blood in a jar and keep it with them. It's not very hygienic. Um, definitely like some risk of some pathogens there. I'm sure they're very careful. Um, but the, the, Egypt, the way that would develop makes no sense to me because you're not adding anything back to the environment. So, and in fact, you're using a lot of resources, like very rare resources to um, mummify these bodies with the cloth and that was used and all of the chemicals that they would wash the body with and then all of the grave goods that they would leave. There's a huge resource sink and where that would have, Developed naturally seems not as clear to me.
0: Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. that is a good point for the Egyptian part. And we also have to keep in mind, too, I don't know the timeline for this, but I do know that at least contemporarily, human bodies are toxic to the environment. Mm -hmm. I don't know at at what point that becomes not true, but it, it it is the data suggests that top predators accumulate all of the toxic heavy metals in the food pyramid underneath them
2: mm-hmm.
0: because everything gets accumulated up and then nothing accumulates it from us right um but you know five to ten thousand years ago i don't i don't know how much that was the case because our diets were much more simpler mm mm-hmm. Right. Um. As far as the Sorry,
2: I'm not
0: fertility of the migratory roots of these peoples, I think what you're talking about there is like a classic B.F. Skinner positive reinforcement.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They're doing a behavior. They get a positive stimulus, which rewards and incentivizes the continuation of that behavior. And they could just kind of like tricked themselves and conditioned themselves to continue those places which could also you know if we want to take a reductionist behaviorist approach we could say like all of culture originated that way as human beings realized that there was utility and it was fruitful to carefully attend to things Mm -hmm. and by carefully attending to things things got better and that created that positive stimulus to reward that same pattern of behavior over and over and over, washrooms repeat.
1: Well, I think that's what differentiates the human animal from other animals is we are very keen on picking up on what worked last time and what I should repeat. And for other animals, for you know, chimpanzees, dolphins, other very complex animals, it can take a couple trials. And they might not pick up on, this is why, you know, this worked so well last time. Um, But you will find some non-human animals with some pretty complex rituals. Like there's those dolphins that exclusively hunt swimming sideways and...
0: Elephant graveyards. That works
1: better. Right. So you do see this in other animals, but I think humans, our brains are much better at it, which... To me, is a reductionist, it's just, you know, good job, humans. We did it better than other animals.
0: Well, I, I think to some degree, we can use an apt analogy here. So I was talking with Levi about this when he was up here recently, um, that, you know, what what is the human brain fundamentally, like function-wise? What does it do? Well, the human brain is a modeling engine. The same way that you would have people in a math lab or a science lab run abstract modeling to see if their hypothesis has any credit and then transfer that abstract modeling into real world modeling to see if the the consequences correlate that's what the that's what the brain does all the time that's what memories are it's that body of evidence it's that body of data with which the brain can project abstractions into an abstract future to make predictions as to how consequences are going to be that's why if you catch very quick movement in the peripheral vision, you instinctively duck a little bit because the brain is modeling. If that was a projectile or something thrown, the probabilistic, the most probabilistically accurate response would be to duck. So you don't get hit. And it's just happenstance that it overreacted and it was just movement and not a projectile. Right. And I mean, that's what it does all the time. So if we model probabilistically accurate or the most accurate as possible responses to things and then we can modify those models by remembering consequences of behavior then our models can get more complex and more accurate over time right reinforcing that behavior
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, and it then does. So, like, so if 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 brains are like computers, the human brain is one of those that has... I don't want to use artificial intelligence because I don't want to confuse terms or, or or create a misnomer for anybody. But if our brain is an externally housed computer, it has that artificial intelligence to do that abstract modeling. Whereas more base creatures like, I don't know, a ladybug or an ant or something, what are their brains? Well, their brains are strictly just the chip on you know, the soundboard for my microphone Mm -hmm. that I'm using that only has that base operating system. And that's all they do.
1: Yeah. Click button, Mm -hmm. the light lights up. Click button, the lights light up versus click button and Twitter. So, yeah. And the hard part about all of this is that it's very difficult to know whether or not animals are capable of what we're capable of because they don't have very complex verbal behavior so you can't just ask them you know can you take a mouse and close your eyes and spin it around in your head like can you remember what the back looks like once you're not looking at the back um because humans can we can manipulate objects in our mind i can change the color of the mouse in my mind um i can make it bigger i can imagine that it's huge and There are some animals that seem to be able to do this uh but we don't know for sure because there's not a good test besides self-reporting
0: what is that that's um piaget's um formal operational stage of development right whereas like orion is still he's my seven-year-old he's more concrete Mm -hmm. right you give him four blocks and he can arrange them into two groups and demonstrate two plus two but he needs the blocks as the grounding points for him to do that right between William, my 10-year-old, and Gage, my 17-year-old, there's a spot in cognitive development where where we go from that concrete operational thought into that formal operational thought where we can, I don't have to give William four blocks. He can close his eyes and he can imagine four blocks and manipulate them and separate them into two groups and do two plus two equals four in his head.
1: Right. And Which... Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So we can say humans have this special skill in order to do this, but we don't know for sure we're the only ones because it's extremely hard to test Um, because there are some very impressive animal behaviors, hunting habits, just natural things that they're doing that would take humans a long time to learn.
0: To some degree, and I'm vastly underqualified to make this claim, but I do try to know what I'm talking about and I do tend to reason things through reasonably, but I wonder if object permanence is the forerunner for that ability. And we know mm-hmm. there are other creatures that have ob- object permanence. You can take something, you can show it to them, you can hide it, or you can have them leave the room and bring them back, and they go to where it's at. Right? They, they have some sort of working memory of a concept of that item in existence, even though they're not directly observing it.
1: Mm -hmm. That like searching behavior.
0: Yeah. And then, so I wonder if being able to abstractly model those objects that you have a concept of permanence for is the next step in that. We'll address that right after our break. So here's a thought. object permanence as the beginning marker for belief in afterlife Mm -hmm. being able to abstractly conceptualize something after its existence which would i guess prime a being into creating a set of beliefs around that idea
1: Right. So this kind of leads into my thought that when people first started worshipping, being religious, that kind of thing, it was directly related to keeping them alive and making sure the harvest was good, that they could find their way, that there wouldn't be a crazy lightning storm that killed everybody. and then started getting into what happens when you die. And it would make sense that that would be the next step for religion to me, especially when, you know, I don't think you would start with what happens when you die. I think you would start with these gods are powerful enough that every time I sacrifice a goat, I have a good harvest that year. And they can take care of me once i'm dead but that it's such a big leap to me
0: well okay that's operating under the presupposition that god's came first as a human creation and and by human creation i don't mean like theologically i mean psychologically human creation as a way to explain phenomena type thing what if it's the other way around there was one of the the papers that I was looking at to prepare for this discussed dead minds as being associated with the afterlife. And by that, I think they mean, or at least this is how I took it. Say, for example, I pick up and I read The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. I can read that and I can parse out snippets and snapshots of that old person's, that dead person's personality, his character. I can contextualize it historically and I can pick out even more of that person's personality and character. And that, as an origin for belief in an afterlife and then because now we can ascribe character to dead things non-existent things abstract things the next step would be ascribing characters to abstract phenomena supernatural phenomena lightning mm-hmm. is only supernatural if you don't understand what it is right because i mean that's literal definition of supernatural is beyond natural above natural so if you live in a, in a region that doesn't see many storms And a storm comes through, and you see lightning for the first time in your life at the ripe old age of 27. Right? That's not normal. That's not natural to you. But now you have this organizational system, this belief structure in quote unquote non existent spiritual things having a character. And you have that skill set with which to ascribe that character to. A non human phenomenon. Does that make sense?
1: It might even be more direct, where, because that just reminded me of like the cult of the skull in Mesopotamia. I cannot be more specific than that, but there's all of these houses, and at the bottom is a skull of an ancestor. And every single house has this. And it seems like they were each worshiping someone that they knew or was like a couple generations away as their god and there's also a lot of speculation that you know gods like the sumerian gods that even like osiris and iris like those egyptian gods were a person and
0: or they were at least anthropomorphic
1: yeah or they were a living person who died and then their story evolved over time into being a god and so this person you know your Aunt dies, grandmother dies, some sort of matriarchal figure in your, like, tribe or nomadic group, and then you attribute things that happen to that person, um, and it's then, over time, that relation, this is my grandmother, this is an ancestral religion, to just being a straight-up religion, this person is just a god, because um, over time, you know, that relation, that part of the story might get lost or just not be as important, Um so it would make sense to me if it was more direct that they were worshiping or thinking about their ancestors, honoring them in some way, and then eventually escalating that to these are now the religious figures.
0: Well, and then there's, there's a healthy symbolism there to support that. So, like, having the bones of your ancestor in the basement of your home in which you are currently raising your living family places literally and metaphorically that ancestor at the root of your family tree. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: The seed with which the tree grew out of right so so you you have that symbolism there and i mean that's interesting i wonder if that's where our idea of the family tree came from Mm -hmm. something akin to that um which is is... far-fetched and and i doubt it's something that we could ever like conclude
1: it's it's also an assumption that they were related to the skull in their house but like probably (laughs) they didn't just get it from you know off the street um It probably was a family member, but there's actually no proof of that. Um, So yeah, there's a lot of assumptions with that whole cult of the skull, but from what they would do with the skull is take it out, cover it in clay so that it had facial features again and decorate it um, because there's evidence of that. And then the... You know the next generation would get it and they'd do more they'd remove the clay and have it back to just being the skull and there was different things that they would do with these um as like obviously ritualistic and i can see how you could make the leap from this is my ancestor i'm honoring my ancestor to this is a god and whether or not you're related to them um or with a lot of human religions there is sort of that sort of relation. This is the mother, God, this is a father, God, this is the sun, God, the womb goddess. Um, that tends to be running theme. They are the ones who created humanity as far as a lot of people are concerned. Um, so it would make sense that it would go from ancestor to God. Um, especially when you get into those creation myths, which not every religion yeah. has, but a lot of them have.
0: Okay. Let's um I want to talk about two things. I want to go back to your binary really quickly of having ideas of gods or deities to help us today.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then it's almost antithesis of believing in gods or deities to help us for an infinite tomorrow's. To some degree, we still do that today. We have all kinds of people that seek religious counsel to get through a difficult time of their life, one that they're hoping to survive. Right? Um, Put grandma in your prayers so she can recover from the surgery. Continue living, right? Help us today. And then we we also have that preparing for the next bit embedded in there too. So, I don't know if those two things are mutually exclusive, as in ten thousand years ago, we predominantly believed one, and nowadays we predominantly believe the other. i think I think there's there's so much crossover that it's I would say impossible to disentangle the two within a culture and that both are present in varying degrees within any culture that that has religious tendencies, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Another thing I want to bring up too is death anxiety. Mm-hmm. We are part of what makes the human animal unique in the animal kingdom is we are aware of our own morality, not morality mortality. We're mm-hmm. aware of the temporal bounds. We know we're not infinite. We know we began and we know we will end. And we're almost critically aware of that. So how do we deal with that awareness? Well, typically that awareness would what manifest as some sort of anxiety in some capacity. And then belief in an afterlife as a way to assuage that anxiety.
1: Oh, yeah. I think, well, yes, it, it's definitely aimed at getting rid of that, oh no, my time is up um, feeling. Uh, but also, today we know a good bit about how and why a human body will die. And 5,000 years ago, they had no idea why this person got a fever, why their hand turned green and then black and then fell off, why they died of exposure. Um, they wouldn't know those things. They would just know that this person died and then would need to attribute that to something. So you can die, especially, you know, <laughs> without proper clothes in like pretty mild weather if it's raining pretty hard and it's cold and it's at night Um, and the need for an answer or why could assuage some of that anxiety by saying it was the thunder god it was the night god it was the sky god Um, and giving that otherwise mysterious death, some type of reason or meaning beyond they just drop dead, because it is very difficult for humans to accept that that could happen <laughs> to anyone. Uh, we like to think I do things right. I eat healthy. I sleep enough. I follow the rules. I do my ritual sacrifices, whatever. I shouldn't drop dead. Um, And rather than accepting that it could truly be random you know that bus could come and hit you tomorrow but having that answer or something to put on it and say this is why um and ascribing meaning after that person is gone i can see that being very helpful back then the same way as it is today
0: okay two more things firstly And we'll come back to this. Why do we feel a need to live meaningful lives? Or have meaning in our life? Or have our life be meaningful? Secondly, and I know I did it out of order because I want to start here, but it's going to smooth out better. Why do you think we need those reasonings? obviously we we do them because we feel we have to otherwise we wouldn't do them Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and in i mean at the very least if we want to be partially reductionist about reductionistic about it there would have to be some evolutionary benefit right so what is that evolutionary benefit and then secondarily to that question number two why have we developed the to feel the need to have that justification
1: the evolutionary benefit for after the fact deciding why that person died interesting I think the easy answer is to know what not to do. We're social creatures. We can learn how to do a task simply by watching someone else do it um, without ever having done it yourself. You can just watch a video and be, oh, I have that skill now, um, which is a very complex skill. So our ancestors 5,000 years ago would also have had that skill and would know, know, they watched someone eat this plant, die, they know not to do that um, without ever having to experience that eating plan dying themselves. So that's an easy answer, but definitely not the only reason.
0: No, but, but I think that's, I think you're onto something there because what if it's the same thing? Meaning that our skill set of being able to continue modeling information after the input of that information is stopped, right? We're watching our peers. Our peers do something stupid but we didn't know it was stupid at the time and it gets them killed now we know that it's stupid but we can continue rendering that model afterwards too and in i'm not just talking about mythologically there's psychological data to back up that right we know that the human brain is capable of processing data even after that data is removed so one of the tests that that this group of psychologists did was they would present a math formula to a student for a brief time period. I don't know what the time period was. For argument's sake, we'll say it was 15 seconds. And then they removed that stimulus. And then even after the removal of that stimulus, that student's brain was still capable of making predictions and projections about that formula after its existence, even if they only got half of it. By getting half of the formula, they were able to start reasoning through what the other halves would be based on probability, even after that was removed. And then they could take it one step further and they could start going through probabilistically accurate answers to that formula. right? And that's that's kind of that same thing. We see something happen, we store it as memory, and we can continue to abstractly model and render that memory for alternative endings so that way we can embody the probabilistically most accurate one and then that ties in perfectly with our idea of object permanence and afterlife mm-hmm. right and i think i think those if they don't dovetail very nicely together i think it's one of the same thing and they're i don't know if they're spandrels right so like an evolved trait that has this byproduct and that byproduct just so happened to be beneficial as well, or if it's one in the same engine that's creating these same things. I, I, I don't know if, what the difference is between the two, if there is a difference. Um,
1: right. I think there's kind of two parts to that object permanent skill. And the first one is being able to do it, to continue extrapolating information from what you've got running those scenarios, running the formula. And then the second part of that, I think, is being right once you get to the end, which I think, I would say that's a different skill coming to the right answer. Because I could take, you know, a TV remote, see it for a split second, and then be asked which button changes the volume. And I could visualize it see all of the buttons and then click the one labeled power and say that's the one that should change the volume and i'm completely wrong but the skill was still there but the conclusion was incorrect so i think being i mean maybe we don't have that skill to be right it's just kind of whoever's smartest can do it
0: or maybe it's being right is not not the focus being less wrong yeah, so because those are two That's probably it. right. If I'm being chased by a bear, I don't have to be the fastest. I just can't be the slowest, right. You know that way, the evolutionary fitness payoff is highest proportionately for effort put in. right? Whereas right. You know, law of diminishing returns, if you shoot to be the best, well, there's only one that can be the best. That means all of the energy past what it takes to survive efficiently is hypothetically wasted energy.
1: So I'm thinking now person A drinks from a pool of water, gets sick and dies, say there's Giardia in that water. And the other person says that water killed them. Fact, the extrapolation is because this pool is sacred and they angered the gods um, versus what we would extrapolate now, that water is tainted. There's a dead skunk at the bottom. There's something poisoning it. And whether or not they were right, they still know not to drink the water.
0: Well, and, and again, the, I think the phrasing of that, the well is sacred and you pissed off the God type of thing, is presupposing that our idea of a deity came first. Mm -hmm. It very well could be, at the very least, equally probable that it is witnessing someone drink fouled water, get sick and die. That is the foundation for having a deity created in the first place to represent the sacredness of that. Right. Going back to your dead ancestor in the basement idea maybe Uncle Tommy was the first one to drink from that particular spot in the river and he died and then after five generations Uncle Tommy is the spirit of that end of the river that 10 generations later you use as an explanation to your kids don't piss off the you know Tommy the tea water God because he'll kill you in your sleep or he'll he'll drown your insides type thing
1: I think that's extremely likely especially when like in like Mesopotamia where the cult of the skull is, they did have a lot of very unpredictable weather with floods. And then, you know, over time rivers move, things change. The environment looks different. This place that was right next to the river bank is now a mile away. And I think that unpredictability of nature would Lend itself to superstition very easily because there is no way for that person to know 10 miles away, there was a huge rainstorm. So your village is going to flood now. They wouldn't have information like that, it would just flood. And the like, there's a lot of research, not anymore, but they used to do research on pigeons where they put in a treat into the box at a completely random time. It was on a timer, and the pigeon would begin to engage in this superstitious behavior, which was not related to getting the pellet. But as far as it knew, if it did this particular movement, the pellet would come. So, and it looked different for every pigeon. Um, Some pigeon would spin around constantly. And then that's what was triggering the pellet as far as it was concerned. And then other pigeons would peck, others would jump, others would flex their wings whatever they were doing at the time that the first pellet came in and they were hungry, they would try that again, move the wing, see if another pellet came. Um, And enough randomness in there would lead to a superstitious behavior, um, which... So to me, the more random it is, the better um, suited that environment is to creating a funky religion. Um, And that's true with Egypt as well. There was a ton of flooding in the Nile that would happen all the time. And the riverbanks would be completely different the day before as they were um, the next day and your entire village might be wiped out. Um, And now that's all solved because there's a dam, it doesn't flood anymore. Everyone's fine, it's very predictable. Um, But if you didn't know what was going to happen, whatever you were doing that day, you would assume that's the reason why it flooded
0: that's really interesting because we do know that one of the psychometrics of environments with high unpredictability or i guess low predictability Uh is is anxiety Mm
2: -hmm.
0: right that's what anxiety is is uncertainty and for people that have anxiety that manifests in physically discernible symptoms, increased heart rate, sweats, panic attack, all of that stuff. Um, That uncertainty can be crippling, and and it creates that cognitive cycle of hyper-focusing on that uncertainty and all the myriad different ways that it could go wrong, as opposed to focusing on the myriad different ways that it could go right. So. that would be really interesting i wonder if you could do a historical analysis and chart the rise in religious fundamentalism with chaotic nature of the i'm going to use the loose term environment i'm also meaning cultural and socio-political environment as well, mm-hmm. not just nature, of you know, like the past 4,000 years, and see how well that correlates. And then, you know, if it does, secondarily, why? You know, it right. is. And, and I think this ties in back to my first question. um Why do human beings seem to be one of the few animals that? for lack of better terms, has to find meaning in our lives. Right. Cats don't care if they mean something. Or at least if they do, they don't manifest it in ways that make it apparent to us.
1: Right. That was going to be my next step was we're not sure fairly certain ants do not ants do not care about their meeting hive mind totally they're totally fine with being killed and eaten for the better whatever for higher animals as you get up you know through mammals and birds it's difficult to know if they have that same
0: yeah but you don't let's let's continue using cats as an example mm-hmm. so we we do cats too tend to be pretty neurotic <laughs> and one of the strengths of neuroticism is you are more fine tuned to be aware of threat
2: mm-hmm.
0: so there's that inherent survival benefit there but outside of their neuroticism and their attachment anxieties, we don't seem to see cats having existential crises. You don't see cats committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't you don't see cats manifesting any other of these self-destructive behaviors other than overeating. But they're an animal with presumably lower cognitive function than us so they're just doing what they do and they consume because that's what they're biologically designed to do but you know you you don't you don't see them necessarily manifesting addictions in lieu of a stable and meaningful life they're just cats
1: Right. I think I'm thinking of there's research to suggest that uh, our water mammals, is there a term? I don't know what the term is. Whales, marine mammals. dolphins. Thank you. Marine mammals. They, um, There's evidence to suggest that regionally they have different methods of communication that are passed down. And if you took a dolphin from a pod in Gulf Shores and put it dropped it in a pod oh, yeah. in the Pacific Ocean, that it would not be able to effectively communicate with those other dolphins because they've developed separate, you know, this is just a behavior. It's not that something that's innate in them. They learn it from their mother and it's passed on and it's different and
0: almost like a dialect.
1: Right. So they have the same tools. They have the same tongue, just like us. But the, you know, the clicks that mean there's food over here means something completely different to these other dolphins. And there's, you know, obviously not confirmed, but they're pretty sure that this is a phenomenon. Um, it might be confirmed now. I, I'm not up to date on all of the animal cognitive psychology, but um, there's a lot that we just don't know. Um, and like birds flocking and how do all of the birds know to fly? in the way that they do, especially with these swirling, you know, very complicated geometrical patterns that these birds are doing. Um, all of the butterflies seemingly know to fly at the same time, um, whether or not that's well, and, communication and, or something that's innate, mm, it's difficult that's to say.
0: always fascinated me. So take the monarch butterfly as an example.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The monarchs that fly south are like two or three generations removed from their ancestors that flew north hmm but yet they go to the same spots every year and there's like intergenerational they... memory transmission
1: right is and is that innate? another thing is that communication it's hard to say
0: i don't know probably <laughs> um and it will i mean obviously it has to be communication somehow but is it genetic communication and if so like what are the possibilities there and then tertiarily should we And I think the answer to that last one is most definitely no, (laughs) right? Every time human beings meddle, we tend to make things worse because as much as we think we know about something, we never know the totality of a system. We never know it in its entirety. We have no idea how messing with this gene is connected to all of the other trillions of connections in your genome Mm -hmm. or the trillions to the 10th power of consequences of those combinations of genomes. Right. Um, which is why like the environmentalist movement, well, good good intentions, great intentions needs to slow down a little bit because we have no idea what we're messing with, right. How intricately connected everything else is, but that's, that's a, a different, um, Going back to the genetic memory transmission, studies have shown that caterpillars, when they go through metamorphosis, when they break down and reconfigure themselves at the molecular level, retain memories in butterfly form that they created when they were in caterpillar form. Mm-hmm. what the hell
1: they don't even have brains
0: like okay so how is that information codified and then transmitted right it, it's if it was genetic i would have to assume that that short-term memory either a that the caterpillar just has wickedly evolving dna or yeah, they that, would have to wow. have some mechanism with which to take that short-term cognitive memory that short-term lived experience and codified in their genome, which I'm not not, a geneticist in any capacity, but seems less likely than an alternative mechanism with which to codify information that can survive a myriad of complex and What's the word I'm looking for? Situations that would normally degrade and deteriorate and oftentimes eliminate other forms of information. Right? If I have a piece of paper and I put it in a fire, whatever information is on that piece of paper is no longer there. Whereas if I carve it onto a stone tablet, I can put it into the fire and it can survive that fire and therefore that information can continue to be transmitted. Mm -hmm that phenomenon, you know, of, of, of a chaotic and violent experience.
1: I was going to say, it's not completely insane to think that it's just strictly genetic, but having that information so readily accessible and having like how the environment interacts with our genome we're not entirely sure but we know that it does um especially when you look at you know like darwin's finches they all have different beaks because of their environment and that affected their genome eventually so there's something there it doesn't act very fast key,
0: key word for me there is is eventually Right. Right.
1: It's not very um, fast.
0: And, and so like I, I get that the same way that if you introduce lead into a water supply in Los Angeles over three generations, you'll have an average population with like 15 to 30 points less in average IQ. Right. Eventually that'll take over. Um but say I have an experience today and I metamorphize. And I remember that experience tomorrow where I am molecularly different than what I was beforehand. Mm-hmm. I think, And again, I'm no geneticist but that just seems awful wicked fast.
1: It is fast. <laughs> um, and a lot of room for error is what I would say. There's You know when that change is happening mutations happen all the time that's how some types of cancer mm-hmm. evolve. that's how um the, it happens every day um and in our human bodies our immune system picks out the ones that are wrong and leaves the ones that are fine yeah um, all
0: all diagnoses all diagnoses of cancer are, are the ones that your body couldn't fight off.
1: Right. Cause every single day your body's fighting cancer. Mm-hmm. You don't need any like specialty to do it. Your immune system has got it. Um, so presumably there is some type of mechanism that is self-correcting those errors that happen. I like guess not self-correcting, um, forcefully correcting outside correcting those errors that are occurring over time. Um,
0: well, I mean, viewing it from the outside or in extra dimension from that system that contained system is self-correcting but it's self-correcting by pruning aberrations within that system
1: yeah your genes can't fix themselves but your body
0: can fix your genes
1: has has a tool they have the hammer or the nail or whatever it is so yeah i'm struggling now to tie this back to religion and afterlife because we got here by saying we don't know if animals are religious they might be
0: Um, well because i was thinking about meaning and then we went to transmission of memory which is 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 equally interesting
1: oh yeah
0: so let's let's take one more break and then we'll come back and we'll tie i have an idea for transmission of memory and then we'll try and tie it in with fundamental meaning of existence and then we'll see if we can wrap that back around why do people believe in an afterlife fundamentally because it seems to be an innate characteristic of humanity mm, yeah but more people do than don't so brb already okay memory transmission I find it fascinating that every single day you wake up, you are a physically different person than you were when you went to sleep. Your cells die, they're recycled, they shed, new ones are born, they take their place. New ones are created, they take their place. And yet they all still function in their appropriate roles independently to create that complex system that is a singular human being Mm
2: -hmm.
0: that memory transmission piece plays in because each of your cells still knows what to do now obviously you know we're talking about biological structures that don't have cognitive processes right they, they simply respond to environmental stimuli and then their responses to those environmental stimuli trigger responses to the other cells around them you oh, know shit. kumbaya we have an individual human being but the, you know that happens in your brain too so you form a memory
2: oh my God. and the
0: cells that that memory is housed in get replaced and yet that memory is still transmissible
2: mm-hmm.
0: i think that's oh, I phenomenal um you know borderline miraculous if you boil it down and actually think about it right it's but how do we go from a clump of cells that is loosely centrally organized to conscious being with ident with an identity of singularity right out of the trillions of cells that make me i am a single entity Mm -hmm. and why does that entity have a drive and desire to find meaning in our existence Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. We we can we can live without meaning. Right. Like if to some degree you don't have to have meaning to be evolutionarily successful. We can fulfill our function. So why do we have to have that extra layer of meaning on top of it? Is it efficiency? Is it a spandrel? Is there something else there?
1: I was, I did have a thought today because I have been crocheting as a hobby quite a lot recently. And my thought was, why do I have a hobby? Why am I doing this? (laughs) Because if you put a human in a room with as much food and water and light and exercise as they needed, they would still fill their time with
0: something to do.
1: Yeah. They would make things. They would draw, they would sing, they would do dance exercise. We are doing these things, having hobbies, keeping ourselves mentally stimulated and maybe that's it. Maybe it's a use it or lose it thing where, We have to be thinking deeply, engaging in things that are difficult or creative so that those skills are still there. Similar to how, you know, lions will play fight and baby tigers will stalk their mothers to stay sharp on those skills and to learn them. So...
0: Yeah, but that's i think that's different than ascribing fundamental meaning to something
2: mm-hmm.
0: right it, it's not just that it's not just that i need to know why i'm doing something Oh.
2: Yeah.
0: we can reason that out i'm not going to say it's easy but it's relatively easy but to have existential meaning my life meant something right what's one of the best ways to induce depression in people is to convince them that they're meaningless Mm -hmm. why is that such a profound effect because you can feel meaningless but still eat Mm -hmm. still get up for work because you need money so you can eat right whatever whatever the environmental and socio-political constraints are you can still meet them without meaning so why is it so detrimental psychologically for people to not have it? and I'm not expecting you to have the answer here I'm just I'm talking through these ideas
1: right because that well it's extremely common. Like, if we're just talking depression, um, something like one in ten humans experience a depressive episode before they die, which, you know, that's a long time—eighty years for most people. Um, so, it's still,
0: con- you know, common enough to
1: very common affect and,
0: three quarters of the population at some point in time,
1: right? And there's like some data to to suggest that the most common like disability check is written for a person with depression because of how common it is. You know, there's not that many people with cerebral palsy, so that would not be the most Mm -hmm. uh, common reason why a disability check would be written. Um, And it tends to be people who have depression and can't work and, it seems like a flaw and that could be the answer like it's not supposed to be this way um
0: but you'd think the evolutionary process would weed out those bugs in the system so i don't think it would be a bug in the system it seems to be like a feature of the system
1: my first thought is that we don't have very good historical data on how often depression was happening um there are a lot of people who think that if we still live nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyles that depression would be zero i'm not one of those people i think it would exist um regardless of what your occupation or culture was. um, Because if there was an occupation or culture where it didn't exist, we would probably have done that or someone would have.
0: And this is where having, I don't know what term I want to use, having a system of meaning making, sufficient enough can ward off bouts of depression within populations it's not hardship of life per se it's being able to find meaning through that hardship that tends to stave off depression
1: that does work with the research as well that suggests that being religious is a protective factor for depression and specifically suicide
0: but that tends to be circular then
1: Mm
0: -hmm. right we have this bug in the system to help protect us from this bug in the system Mm
2: -hmm.
0: so i i don't that doesn't seem sufficient to me and it could just be because one of my toxic traits is chronically overthinking everything because sometimes it is that simple but I would have to think that, you know, the, the two spandrels that create these unintended effects and consequences would get trimmed off by the evolutionary process, given enough time. Um, which would tend to suggest that we need meaning-making systems to stave off depression because we are creatures evolved to have meaning-making systems and depression is a marker of an insufficient meaning-making system.
1: Maybe, and this doesn't answer this fully, but is the meaning-making system the way that we were able to organize ourselves into groups of hundreds of people? Um Cause it's very, very easy for a group of like 14 extended family members to get along and that makes sense. Um, But some of these like nomadic tribes were hundreds of people, multiple families, generationally, you know, living together. So was that the common thread that kept all of these people together? This tradition, this ancestor worship, this everyone agrees, you're talking you, about
0: like the foundation of culture.
1: Right. And that could be why we have evolved such a strong will to ascribe meaning to the things that happen to us because that's what first got us together and organized. Um, and but,
0: that evolved out of our ability to abstractly preserve object permanence
1: my one but with that is that other animals have successfully organized themselves into very large groups as well so it might not be a particularly special characteristic for humans to have done so um but it seems like it would be because
0: you see herds of thousands of Buffalo and stuff like that. But to some degree, how cohesive is that social unit? While there, you know, we do tend to see hierarchies evolve in just about every mammal on earth, but especially those in large numbers. Um,
1: right i guess they're all in the same place but they are not a cohesive social unit they 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 don't know the ones right next to them but they don't know who the leader at the front is that they're following
0: culture i think a lot of that is just evolved safety in numbers behavioral markers
1: whereas a group of people would have a matriarch or a patriarch that they are following and listening to and here's where we camp for the night and they would have a system
0: central organization to some degree.
1: Yeah. So that's probably the difference then
0: whether bottom up or top down is, is moot. There's still some central pillar.
1: Right. So establishing that humans gathering in large groups is different from other animals. Then to me, that still stands that maybe that's why we did that. And depression is the bug and You know other mental illnesses and behavioral difficulties and things that people do that do not fit into that social fabric um
0: well to some degree those i wouldn't necessarily call them bugs mm -hmm. although i'm not going to not because there's plenty of people that have mental illnesses just because you know, as, as uh, what are the words I'm looking for?
1: You mean like it's a random biological difference rather than an environmental influence?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, but outside of that, within the statistical average of human existence, a lot of those, Mental dysfunctions are boundary markers, right? So, like you said, they 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 poke through or perforate the social fabric because those are our markers that we are behaving in ways that extend us beyond that social fabric, or in mm-hmm. ways that are, are counterproductive to that. And then, I guess in layman's terms, we get our shit together and then we come back and we can continue weaving the social fabric cohesively.
1: Right. I was just going to add that there are a lot of people who have, you know, severe mental illness symptoms who still would contribute, oh, yeah. you know, it doesn't impact their ability to contribute to the group or, so those might be two different things. Mm-hmm. The person who feels very bad about themselves they're hearing voices they're you know psychosis and depression and all of that and they are still able to you know be quiet when the group needs to be quiet to get up when the group needs to get up and move and it might be something different that is making a person with all of those symptoms then not adhere to that social fabric and that greater meaning which would then sort of go against the idea that the like meaning and meaninglessness is the difference between someone who participates and someone who doesn't.
0: No, because I don't want to be reductionist. And we're talking about extraordinarily complex systems. Mm-hmm it's not something that any single person is going to be able to accurately and effectively comprehend and understand and articulate the entirety of that system.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Right. We have, we have people that get PhDs in a topic that is a half of a percent of a field,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, um, but I I do think that they are integrally connected in at least the ways that we described and who knows how many more. And we have to remember all of this is playing out under the backdrop or under the umbrella of object permanence into transcendent existence into making meaning of our lives. I don't know if it's a direct feed from one into the other to the other, or if it's like cross directional or convergent evolution. I don't, I don't know about that, but I think all of those topics that we've discussed in, in this session so far have been harking back to the same point in evolutionary psychology
1: right and that just made me think that that object permanence is the idea that i when i go to sleep i know that my food and resources are going to be there when i wake up
0: you know that you will be here when you wake up
1: and someone who has depression is not sure that that will be true and
0: or or not that they're not sure but that it doesn't matter if you have an idea of object permanence if you have an idea of that object continuing some sort of existence after death Mm -hmm. and you have a sense of meaning embedded in all of that then that lack of meaning is what's going to tilt someone into a depressive episode that if they lacked object permanency and were not here in the morning that nothing would be different Mm -hmm. that no one would care that they didn't matter that they didn't have meaning once you cross that threshold I mean, the next step is suicide.
1: That puts it all together for me that a person who is not depressed does not concern themselves with what they know to be true is true. And they are not hearing a voice in their head every minute. They all hate you. They're going to leave you. You're worthless. They'd be better off without you. And they a have person, some healthy
0: sense of meaning in their life right with which to
1: the love and security that they feel is constant
0: well that 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 healthy amount of meaning in their life gives them safeguard in the as, assumption that their their permanence to some degree continues and that it's a good thing that it should as opposed to the other way around and then next step after that is if you embody behaviors in such a way in life then that object permanence would continue after
1: life that yeah And if you weren't sure that, like just considering your social fabric was secure and true and what it is um, to me, that usually means that you are not paying attention to what the social fabric actually is. You're not tuned in, you're not hearing it. Um, And even if you are hearing it, you turn around and don't believe that that's true. Um, and the, not the cure, but one of the things you can do is to tap into that social fabric, go to places, be around people, join a community. And that tends to be the thing that gets people out of depressive episodes. Um, The other thing is just time. But the, I think what I'm getting at is that Proving to yourself that other people are good and trustworthy and will take care of you and will remember you is the sort of end of that journey, the end of that wheel and then you're back tuned into the social fabric and you're able to trust all think those things are true that object permanence and it is for some people something that they're not able to hold on to and then for other people they never lose that and to me that wraps into what the meaning would be is that social aspect i can't think of anything else that would impact a person i mean obviously there are other things (laughs) everyone's different but for the most part
0: that's reciprocal too it's not just that you need to have validity in your assumptions that your social circle will take care of you have your best interest to some degree at heart will remember you carry on your ideas and your legacy whatever we mean by that but also that they're relying on you to do the same
1: yes it is a give and take
0: Mm -hmm. And, and and it is that i think it is precisely that give not take that is the fulcrum or the pivot point of that meaning making
1: yeah and the people who are able to do that otherwise
0: you're just a burden
1: right the people who are able to do that and you know leap that gap and say okay yes all of this is true um are fully functioning members of society they're reliable they're friendly they
0: more or less integrated psychologically
1: yeah, they build and maintain the communities that they're in, and people who aren't able to do that are not doing that, as in building and maintaining the community that they're in. Yeah.
0: And that's where we start seeing cycles of delinquency and criminality, right? Um, antisocial yep. and psychopathic behaviors arising, narcissism, Machiavellian, the dark triad, personality tributes. All of that stuff arising as aberrations of healthy meaning-making systems, put simply. Now, the question is, are those aberrations, are those aberrations, I don't know. You know, chicken and egg.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Are those symptoms of a deficiency? And in by deficiency, I, I don't mean like personal deficiency. I'm not saying that these people are less people or anything like that. I'm saying deficiency in um meaning-making systems, deficiency in healthy social circles, that social fabric that keeps us all stabilized and sane. Right. Um I watched a Jordan Peterson podcast recently where where he he defines sanity as the marker that you can operate and cooperate with people right because and you know sanity is a normative concept right i'm not big on the social constructionism or anything because to some degree i think it's a crock of shit. but to some degree there are kernels of truth there (laughs) Right. and that idea of sanity is one of those things there's no such thing as a sane individual right mm-hmm. point to me the sane individual that we all base everybody's cognitive models and and you know psychometric readings off of you're never going to find them but if you can maintain a stable relationship with a significant other if you can maintain a stable career if you can have healthy workplace relationships, if you can raise healthy kids, if you can pay your bills on time, all of those things that promote stability in the system. And by the system, I'm not meaning like the man or a governmental organization or anything like that. I'm meaning the biological systems within which we are all embedded.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And we create such as the you know our our um, psychosocial and sociopolitical systems. All of those things. That's what I mean by this system. If you can operate stably in the system, operate in the system with stability, that's a marker for sanity. Because if you were cognitively too far one way or the other, you wouldn't be able to do those things. And therefore, you wouldn't be able to be evolutionarily successful. So going back to the whole dark triad, when you're those that don't embody those characteristics don't participate in the community building, instability, blah, 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 is that chicken and egg, right? Are they, which truth be told, they could be any of us at any point in time. All it takes is one sufficiently traumatic event and a series of bad responses to it to get anybody to that point. Yeah. Um, but those tend to be self-replicating i think is what i'm getting at right if you engage in cycles of delinquency and criminality there's predictable consequences there and then all of the stability you were trying to create undergoes those events that turn them into destabilizing agents and those cycle and that you know that cycle of delinquency and criminality continues so it has it been Is the human story that of two competing narratives, that of stability and order, and then instability and psychopathy, and they've both been working in tandem since the dawn of time? Or has it been, you know, I I, I don't even know how to phrase the alternative. Um, But I, I, I don't know. I'm leaning towards. I'm leaning towards there was not a singular event in human history that we could point to as, here's where the system failed and it created these people that have dark triad attributes and are psychopathic and have addictions and blah 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 blah, and then that became self replicating. I think they emerged simultaneously.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Right. And, And I don't know if we can find a way to historically or biologically or evolutionarily prove that, but I think philosophically that's the case. Right. And I don't know how I feel about it, but I'm going to invoke postmodernists here. Right. The postmodern thinkers would say that the minute you define a system, right, all of its The moment you define the ideal operations of a system, you are at the same time delineating and identifying all the aberrations for the operations of that system. They go hand in hand. They're inseparable. Because the second I say that's a cat, you automatically create all of these images of not cats with which to bounce that off of. Right. I can point at a cat and say, that's a cat. And you automatically know because you know that's not a dog. Both of those truths appear at the same time. Right. So once we say, here's how a system operates with stability, we are creating the preconditions with which for there to be destabilizing agents and circumstances. Mm-hmm. Similar origin point, two independent truths both originating at the same time. Right. Think think of it as like tandem skydivers, right? The first time you go skydiving, you don't jump on your own. You're tethered to the instructor and you jump connected to them, but your two harnesses connected together, right? They emerge and operate in tandem, forever connected and feeding off of and into each other.
1: And so by that, you mean there's more to the story of this, psychopathic murderer you know there's tons of examples of serial killers Then, what happened to them in their childhood and what their just regular biology is their genetics that there's something else on top of those two factors or are you talking those two factors are in tandem
0: i'm saying stability and instability are in tandem got it that
1: How could I for every those? like for every
0: well if 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 we could if we could pinpoint the exact year month day and time that human culture originated
2: mm-hmm.
0: we would also be pinpointing the exact same year month date and time that Aberrations of human culture originated. That they were, they they were both. They both spawned simultaneously, but they're inseparable from each other. The, right, because they're because they're describing the same system.
1: Right. I'm not fully clued in but i'm not that good at philosophy so maybe that's just me well,
0: no that means i need to find a better way to explain it and i don't know if i can um
1: what i was thinking when you explained it again was if like to put it practically you have this person who will grow up to become a serial killer they're 10 years old they're being bullied in school they're going to carry that anger and that's why they, you know, murder people that when that instance happens, we go back and they say, I'm doing this. Cause I was bullied in school, which a ton of them do.
0: No, that- no, 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 no. no. I'm, I'm saying that our cultural understanding of that as an aberration of the idea of a serial killer being a destabilizing force within the system.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: that originated at the same time that people were like, here's how we can make things better. Here's how we can stabilize things. They were both born at the same time. So just by the very fact that you used serial killer as an example of a psychopathic behavior, right? that by virtue, we only understand that within this system Because we also understand that not being a serial killer helps stabilize the system, Mm -hmm. right? And and when those two definitions, defining one automatically defines the other, right? They're like quantumly entangled, if you want to think of it that way, to where no matter where you are in space time, if something affects one quantumly entangled particle, there's an equal response in the other one, right? Same way it works together so when when human culture was created and people were like obviously this is overly simplistic because it took place over you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of years um people were like hey let's not kill each other and we can live longer
2: Uh-huh.
0: right they were saying here's how we can stabilize the system but they were setting the preconditions with which the system could be destabilized
1: right okay and if you want to strive for this perfect utopia you need a dystopia at least the idea of a dystopia to or not that you need it it just is going to be there as well
0: yes because anything that is not manifest of that utopia is by definition that dystopia
2: Mm -hmm.
0: right which is why um the social constructivism and the critical constructivism of the radical left, the woke, is so pervasive because that, that's that's what they identify. If we could all just get our shit together, we could be in this perfect world. So anything that doesn't get to that goal is by definition getting us to the opposite. It's, 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 right. a, it's, it's a binary all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. And and the reason why it's pervasive is because there are kernels of truth there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. It's just been pathologized so much.
1: That does make sense. And humans do tend to have that in-group, out group idea. And it's
0: part of how we make meaning, you know.
1: Yeah. That's I would the, not like the bitch
0: of it all because that very system that we talked about as the origin of human culture object permanence to multi-existential object permanence to meaning making to build social cohesion with which to attain that extra existential object permanence right is also also divides us Mm-hmm. Right, because we're we're only evolved to be able to handle the right scale. So anything that falls outside of that scale is, you know, it's it's viewed as a threat response.
1: Right. Well.
0: Anything to end us off on? I know. I, think, I was just I, thinking I, I think... to wrap it
1: up. I really like where we went with tying in religion to mental illness and i say religion i, I just mean like the spirit the idea of something greater than our consciousness yeah
0: we 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 as a culture need to separate the idea of religion from dogmatic doctrine
1: yeah english right. is not conducive to that idea so far no but by, um, by
0: religion we can just you know colloquially colloquially mean meaning making systems
1: right yeah um so tying that back in really was a sort of light bulb for me like oh that's we know that to be true that people who are religious do better mentally in society than people who are not um and the why and why is that true now was that true back then um is always worth discussing
0: yeah it's
2: fascinating all right well i think that's it until next time okay see you then